All right, so before I talk about this silly thing on my face, I'm going to say something that actually matters. Um, we have with us a precious couple named Frank and Irene Amaker, and I just learned that yesterday was their 67th wedding anniversary. And uh, Yeah, I know those of you online can't see them, but they are seated in their usual spot, which is right here in the second row, and I just want to thank you guys. That is the work of the Lord, and that blesses all of us. You know, like when you get around 50th wedding anniversary, let us know. We'll start recognizing you in five-year increments, okay? When you get to 65, we'll just recognize you every year after that, right? So that's, that's where we're at, and we're just, we're really grateful. Okay, so the beard. I'm going to comment on it and move on because it's silly and it's not worth discussing, but it has received so many comments that I'm super self-conscious about it. Honestly, like this whole week, I've been getting it, and the deal is this is not an unusual look for me. I mean, it's a little unusual, but it's not like this is the first time I've done this, just on a Sunday it is. Every time I go out of town, we go to North Carolina almost always, and I just don't shave. So that's the deal, and because I don't have to, and I don't want to, until it gets about like this, and it starts driving me nuts, and then I just cut it off, which I might do today. So we'll see. But I just left it. And I, I was I ran into somebody like on Friday, and they're like, whoa, you know, like, what's with the beard? And then I made this joke, and I said, well, you know, in light of what happened Wednesday in our nation's capital, I just thought I'd start getting ready to live in the woods, you know, and because I'm not going to be able to shave then, and I thought I'd get through the itchy phase, and while well, I still have some of the other creature comforts of life. But uh, then I kind of walked away, and I thought to myself, okay, not funny. Not funny. I don't care what your thoughts are. I, I, actually, I probably do. But wherever it is that you stand on what we witnessed, I think we can at least all agree on one thing. It's not funny. It's serious. You know, last October, Beth and I went to dinner with my parents, and so it was, you know, two months before the end of 2020, and we've had sort of an interesting 2020 for all the reasons that everybody already knows about and that everybody else experienced, but then for other reasons, too. Like, 2020 started really in the last couple days of 2019 with the the loss of Beth's dad, and then like a week later, her mom had a heart attack, and then it was kind of like, is she going to live? Is she going to make it? She's in out of the hospital. Now she's in the rehab. Now she's back, and then it was nine days of hospice, and then she died in February, and then March is the pandemic and the quarantine and the racial unrest and the politics, which is really just an unusual blessing to a pastor. Just trust me when I say that I love election years. They're my favorite. So we get to October, we're eating dinner with my folks, and my dad, who knows all of this and then some, (laughs) says, you know, man, I bet you guys are really looking forward to the end of this year. Like when this year ends, you're going to toast the end of this year and you're going to go, yes, 2021. And I said, you know, actually, no, because that's what we've done for like three or four years in a row. Like we we got to the end of 2017. We're like, yes, 2018. And then it was more challenging. We got to the end of 2018 and we're like, yes, 2019, most challenging year of our life until 2020. And I distinctly remember at the end of 2019 going, oh, you know, we, we clinked our glasses. We do this at like 10 because we're going to bed. I'm not going to lie. Like, You know, if you invite us to your New Year's party, we're leaving at like 9.30. You just need to know that in advance. And we're going to be out of town, so it's not going to work. But I start the year rested, okay? But I distinctly remember clinking glasses and going, New Year. And then we got what we got, didn't we? So I said, you know, I think that what we're going to do this year is different. I think we're just going to kind of clink glasses and say, you know what, Lord, you have been faithful to us in this year. 
You have been good and you have proved yourself good in 2020. I want to tell you a lot of good things happened in 2020. A lot of good things in here and out here that would have never otherwise occurred. You find what you're looking for. So look for the good. And Lord, we enter 2021 with you. We don't know what it's going to bring, but experience has taught us that it might not be easier. In other words, I'm not entering this year, you know, expecting to have less dragons to slay. That's, it's not it anymore. I'm not hoping it'll be easier. I mean, I kind of hope that, but you know what I mean? Like I'm not counting on it. I'm entering this year counting on the one who alone can slay my dragons, who alone can stomp on the head of the serpent and crush it. That's it. So today is the second Sunday of the new year. You know that if you've been doing your personal worship on our free phone app, which I encourage, it's a great new year's resolution and you follow along with us in the study, then you know, as Will said earlier in the service, that we are beginning a study of the book of first and second Kings today. We're calling it desiring the kingdom. And so at the beginning of the year and at the beginning of this study, I just want to stop for a minute and talk about beginnings. Okay. Beginnings matter. That's the point that I want to make. I'm going to give you several examples. They matter in relationships. You've all experienced this. You've seen this. Like there are relationships, there are marriages that began and you did not have to be God to declare the end from the beginning because from the beginning you could tell it was rotten. I remember standing in a wedding with all of my friends from college shortly after we graduated and and the two people who were getting married were part of this large friend group and it was a huge wedding. Like there were 12 or 14 guys on one side and 12 or 14 bridesmaids on the other and we're all looking at each other going, what is happening? This is surreal. These people should not get married. The end from the beginning was obvious. Now, God can refound a marriage. God can change that. But beginnings matter. Beginnings matter in politics. And here's what I'm not about to do. I'm not trying to make a political statement, which is part of the new world that we live in. No matter what I say, no matter what you say, no matter how it is that we say it, no matter where it is that we post it, no matter what medium or form of communication that we use, we are heard to say 15 things that we didn't actually mean to say. So here's what I mean to say. Beginnings matter and politics is a good example. Why do I say that? Because if you believe that the foundational principles upon which our government, our nation was created, given to us by our founding fathers are indeed sacred, that they are timeless that they do not change, that they transcend time and they transcend culture, that if maintained, they will be a blessing to this people and to this people in this nation, to every nation around the world, okay, well then, you'll tend to be conservative in your politics. Why? Because you want to conserve that which is sacred. But if you don't believe that it's sacred, you know, maybe it's a, a great list of good ideas that worked back then, but you think that something would work better, well, then you're willing to change it. You see how it works? Beginnings matter. Where you begin matters. It matters with the Bible. Like if the Bible to you, if you begin with this place that the Bible is the word of God, not just parts of the Bible, because that just lets you pick and choose, doesn't it? Oh, that part that's inconvenient to me, that's obviously not of God. That's a part of the Bible where he's not speaking. This part that doesn't ask anything I'm good with. No, 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 the whole Bible. If you come at the Bible from this beginning premise that, you know what, this is a word from another world to me, like this is the word of the living God to me, this speaks with absolute and ultimate authority to me, then you are far more likely to bow to its authority, to submit its authority, to enjoy its blessings. 
But if it's not the word of God, then it's, you know, it's a book of ancient wisdom and it's more or less a list of suggestions. Beginnings matter. They matter in ethics. So, for example, if we believe that man began with a creator who stands above us, who transcends us, who is greater than us, and to whom we belong and owe our absolutely everything and who speaks to us and says, hey, I've created laws of physics that govern the physical universe in which you live, and I've created moral laws that govern your life and your family and society and so forth by which you live. And when you respect those laws, you experience the blessings and the freedoms of them. And when you violate those laws, kind of like when you jump off a building, you know, I have just violated the law of gravity and it's not going to end well. It's going to end fast, but you get the idea. If that lawgiver exists, that's one thing. But if you take the lawgiver out of it and you say, no, 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 human beings began. I mean, we're just a product of evolution and there is no God and there is no lawgiver. Then there is no basis for ethics. As I have kind of jokingly said in the past, in some cultures they love their neighbors. In some cultures they eat their neighbors. I have a preference. Okay? I imagine you have a preference. But that's all it is if there is no God. It's just a preference. Because there's no one who decides. Beginnings matter. Beginnings matter in the way that you view humanity. If you believe this is your beginning place, that humanity is inherently good, then imperfections are unacceptable. What did you do that for? You're inherently good. This is a surprise to me. I can't believe that you did this. You failed. You did. You fall. You, you did this. You did that. You said this. You did that. And, and it's unacceptable. You get the idea which cuts off the possibility of humility that leads to forgiveness, that leads to redemption, that leads to restoration. And it also cuts off any possibility of celebrating anything authentically good that someone who has also done authentically bad things has ever done. And it leaves us with a culture in which there are no heroes because we can't have any. And it leaves us in a a culture, and I am making a statement, this is our culture in which the only good is the condemning of other people. That is not a kind, that is not a gentle, that is not a friendly, that is not a redemptive, that is not a restorative, that is not a helpful, that is a dangerous culture. But if you believe, as the Bible teaches us, that man is inherently flawed, that we are all of us broken in a whole variety of ways, sometimes in different places from the person next to us, but no less, more, more, more or less broken than the person next to us, then you're not surprised when somebody fails. And as unacceptable as their failure is, there's forgiveness. There's a possibility of redemption. There's the possibility of restoration. There's the possibility of you and I not condemning But coming alongside in a humility that is engendered by our recognition and self-awareness of our own brokenness. And we can, even though maybe what they've done is unacceptable, celebrate the good things that they've done. We just can. And oh, by the way, the inherent brokenness of man certainly plays its way out in real ways in our lives and in our society. I mean, I'm sorry, but we've had law enforcement from the beginning. (laughs) We've had, you know, criminal and civil justice systems, and they matter. There's a reason that we have the FBI and the CIA and the Department of Homeland Security and armies and all of these different things. You know what that reason is? We need them. 
That's the reason. So beginnings matter. And the point that I'm making is that how you begin this year matters. So the question that I have for you is this. Will you begin this year in your own strength, trusting in your own wisdom, looking to your own resources and your own power to slay your own dragons, to go and to stomp the heads of the serpents that come and that afflict you this year and that will come. And I don't know if there are going to be more of them this year or less. But are you going to go it alone? Or are you going to surrender to Jesus this year and trust in his strength and in his wisdom and in his resources and in his power, okay, to stomp on the heads of the serpents that you will inevitably face? In other words, will you enter this year merely hoping to have less dragons to slay or trusting in the one who alone can slay them? Because his name is Jesus. And the Bible makes that clear, guys, at its very beginning. Beginnings matter. Where the Bible begins matters. And so if you're not familiar with how the Bible begins, it begins with the story of creation. And the Lord God comes and he creates the heavens and the earth and everything and everyone in them, including the first man, Adam, and the first Eve, or the first woman, Eve. And he takes the first man and the woman and he places them in this idyllic garden, this place that is full of life. It's amazing, it's beautiful, it's incredible, it's paradise. And immediately they face the serpent. Not just a serpent, the serpent. The serpent has a name. The Bible gives us his name. His name is Satan. And he comes to them not with life. He comes to them with death, but he comes to them with death packaged in the wrappings of life. Like, I mean, you look at the packaging, like, good grief. I don't know what's in here, but it's going to be amazing. Like, I mean, I look at the packaging, and this promises everything that I'm looking for. It's got to be it. It's not. It's everything you're not looking for. Listen to the story. It says, now the serpent, who again is animated or possessed by Satan, he comes in the form of a snake. There's a reason for that. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had what? Had made. So he makes the heavens and the earth. He makes the man and the woman. He makes the garden. He fills it full of trees, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. He comes to the man and to the woman. He places them in this real garden. He says to them, you can take from any of the trees in this garden. You can eat from any of the trees in this garden. Just this one tree, I'm telling you, do not eat from the fruit of this tree, lest for in that day you will die. You get the idea? It's like taking a kid who's like eight to Toys R Us and saying, okay, you can have anything in the store. Enjoy the whole store except this yo-yo. This is it. This is all I'm withholding. I don't know. I think that's a pretty good deal. But the point is, the Bible doesn't come to us and present this story as some kind of a mythological tale. The Lord God made. Made the heavens and the earth. Well, that's not mythological. Made the man and the woman he made. That's not mythological. It comes with a real Adam and a real Eve and a real garden and real trees and real fruit and real wow and real adversary. He's real is the point. And just like he came to them, he comes to us. And he tempts in very much the same way. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent, this is awesome, what he said to the woman, which, you know, I mean, look, if this is the first time you're hearing this story, that's a bit shocking, isn't it? And it was shocking to her for exactly the same reason. And what is the reason? Snakes don't talk. Animals don't talk. 
And it speaks to his craftiness. What is he doing? He's coming to the woman and he's going to tempt the woman and through her the man who's sitting there with her to eat from the fruit. Hey, you know what? I know God gave you the whole store. How about he's withheld this yo-yo from you? Like, I mean, come on. Don't you want to play? And what is he implying by coming as a talking snake? He's implying that he himself has already eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil and far from dying as God said that you would. He's an animal, a snake with human capacities. So he's gone from animal level to human level. And what he's suggesting is, look, I mean, if you eat from this, you're going to go from human level to, what's the next step? God level. That's where this is going. It's brilliant. Very crafty. The snake speaks and he focuses her on the one thing that God has said she cannot have. Not all that he, he said she can. It's remarkable. He says, did God actually say that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Which, of course, is not what God said. God said, no, 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 all the trees, just not this one. That's it. And he asks a question to draw her into conversation. He's trying to get her to feel the restriction of the one command of God, which, by the way, is given to secure her life. And so the woman responds. She's drawn in and she says, well, no, actually, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, to which she then adds something to the command of God that he did not include. So she's feeling the restriction. Neither shall you touch it. Okay, God didn't say that. Lest you die. He did say that part. And so the serpent knows that she's taken the bait. You know, he sets the hook, he reels her in. He comes right out and calls God a liar. He says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And now he provides God with a motive for lying. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see that? I've gone from reptile to human capacities. You're going to go from human capacities to, well, can you imagine it? It's going to be awesome. To God-like capacities. You got a better looking present than that? I mean, the wrappings, pretty nice. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now watch what happens next because it reveals a pattern that shows up not just in their life, but in my life and in your life. When the serpent takes the commands of God that are intended to prevent death, death of marriage, death of relationship, death of conscience, death of purity, death of innocence, Death of reputation and mind and body and soul, like God's going, no, 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 listen, I designed the universe, there are all these physical laws, you know, I've designed the world and there are all of these moral laws and I've designed these things into it for your good. I'm telling you how to live, not how to die. When he comes and he does that for us, just like here, there's a pattern. So what is the pattern? We see it in three words. It says, so when the woman, here's word number one, saw that the tree was what? It's word number two, good. Means beautiful, desirable. It was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Or so she thought. She what? Because it's word number three, she took. She saw that it was good, it was desirable, it was beautiful. And she was overtaken 
And so she took it, that which was forbidden of its fruit. And she ate and she gave some also to her husband who was right there with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and thus alienated from God and from each other. And all of a sudden they realize, oh crud, we need to somehow find a way to cover over what we've just done. Big mistake. And here's the best they can do. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, what does that mean? Like they, and I'm going to say this in a way that if you're over 10, you get it. If you're under 10, hopefully not. Talk to your parents. They covered with the fig leaves their procreative parts. Okay. Now, why do they do that? They do that because they realize instinctively in this moment, good grief, we have ruined not just ourselves, but the whole human race that will proceed from us physically. Like we have brought the sting of the serpent, sin and death, on the whole of our family, throughout the whole of human history. It's the reason why we as Christians believe that all of us are broken, that all of us are flawed. And you know what? That belief, again, works its way out in real life. Like, it's undeniable. Just look at yourself. It's there. And as the story goes, as a result, by the way, it illustrates a principle that, that is that we never fall in isolation. We always fall in community. What do I mean by that? I mean that when I fall, it doesn't just affect me. It affects everyone connected to me. And the same is true for you. So then God comes and he curses the woman. And God comes and he curses the man. And God comes and he curses the serpent. And you know, if you're really following the story, you're like, yeah, man, they played with the yo-yo. Like, come on, dude, you had the whole store. And you're uptight about the yo-yo. Like, curse is what we deserved at that point. But it's not all he gave us. In the curse, on the serpent, he gives us hope. He speaks not just to them, but to me. He speaks not just to you, but to, or to me, but to you. Like he speaks to the whole of the human race. He says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring. That's a terrible translation. It's not offspring. It's your seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, you the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And the reason seed matters is because all of us understand biologically, again, if you're 10 or older, and and the Bible respects this biological understanding that the seed in the procreative process comes from the man. Everybody gets that everywhere and everywhere else in the Bible. That's how it is, not here. Why? He's speaking of one who will be conceived without the aid of a human father. It's the only explanation. Who's that? It's Jesus. It has to be. Jesus is God, who through a supernatural conception is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, taking upon himself flesh and blood like mine and yours, a body who, as we just celebrated at Christmas, steps into humanity. And what has he come to do? Because in the moment of our fall, God is already preaching this gospel to us. He says, let me tell you what he's going to do to you, serpent, and for all of you people. He says, he shall bruise. The word actually means crush. He shall crush. It's a death blow is the idea. Your head, O serpent, but he's going to die in doing it. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. In other words, you'll bite his heel as he stomps down on your head. And the bite of a poisonous snake is deadly. Where does Jesus do this? 
He does it at the cross. The supernaturally conceived one, the infinitely righteous, infinitely valuably perfect man goes to the cross to receive the sting and, and of death and of sin for us. It's the sting of the serpent received in our place to pay the debt to God that we owe to him for all the ways that we've, you know, listened. We've seen. It seemed good to us. We've taken. Look, we all have our stories. Jesus is like, let me provide a covering for you because the best you've got is fig leaves and that doesn't work. It is the covering of his blood shed for us. That's the idea. He crushes the head of the serpent there and delivers the whole of us. And, you know, like maybe at this point you're wondering, what does any of this have to do with the book of 1 Kings? Because, like, at the beginning you said we're going to be talking about 1 Kings and that's what the new study is about. And Dear Lord, please don't have Tom now launch into a new sermon about 1 Kings, which I'm not going to do. It has everything to do with the book of 1 Kings. That book starts with David, who's at the end of his reign as the king of Israel, with Solomon, who's at the beginning of his reign as king of Israel, and as we'll talk about next week, both men face a serpent. And as an image of Christ, as a foretelling of what Jesus will do, by the power of God, they defeat it. But I don't want to talk about David and Solomon yet. We'll do that again next week. Question is, what about you? Will you begin this year trusting in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own resources, your own power to crush the heads of the serpents that you will inevitably get this year? Or will you begin this year by surrendering to the Lord, embracing Jesus and and trusting in his strength and in his wisdom and in his resources and his power to do what only he can do? to crush the head of the serpent and to crush the head of yours. In other words, will you enter this year merely hoping to have less dragons to slay or trusting in the one who alone can slay them because that person is Jesus and the Bible is not ambiguous. Like you open it to the first couple pages and he's just jumping up and down and going, hey, you're looking for me, he's saying. He's the one. So to that end, I'm going to give you some questions and I just want you to interact with this. And feel free to interact with this with your husband or wife if you're married, like with a good friend or a trusted confidant if you can. I think it's helpful to talk these kinds of things through. So the first question is, what are your serpents? And I made a non-exhaustive list, meaning there are tons of other possibilities, but let me just give you a few possibilities. Sin, you're like, yeah, okay, well, of course. But a particular sin, how about that? The one you can't seem to defeat. Like you just keep seeing it and it just keeps looking good and you just keep grabbing it. Sin, addiction, anger. Feeling that lately? I feel like everybody's angry. Like I'm driving down the road and I'm like, ah, you know, I'm complaining about it. And I'm thinking, I'm finally I just stopped and went, holy cow, like this is not healthy. It's not right. Pride. That comes into play when we start going, that guy's an idiot, and what about the... Anxiety, depression, loneliness, worthlessness, hopelessness, despair, disappointment, fear. How are the fig leaves doing? Oh, I'm going to stitch some together and deal with my depression. Are you? There is one. 
So what are your serpents and how are you fighting them? Your strength or his? Secondly, how is Satan the serpent tempting you right now? In other words, what form of slavery is he coming to you and it's wrapped up in the packaging of freedom? What kind of pain is he coming to you with but it's wrapped up in the packaging of pleasure? What kind of death is he coming to you with but, oh man, it looks amazing because like it looks like life to me and it's like I see it, I desire it, and I'm reaching out for it. Which is the next question. Where do you see that biblical pattern of tragedy in your own life right now? You're looking at it and it looks good. You're thinking about it and it feels good. You're imagining what it would be like and it's like, oh. By the way, when are we most vulnerable to this? Because it's not when we're unstressed, it's when we're stressed. It's not when we're like happy with the life that God has designed for us, but it's when we're unhappy with the life that God has designed for us. When we feel disappointed by him, we feel justified and kind of kicking his rules aside. You know what? I'm going to jump off the building and test that whole law of gravity thing after all, I think. Where do you see that biblical pattern of tragedy in your life? And then lastly, what are you doing with your sin and with your fallenness? Are you trying to cover it over on your own? Or are you taking it to the one who gave his life so that you can be free of it? Because we all have it in great measure, every single one of us. We know the pattern, we've done it. We've unwrapped the package and received it. We know that God's laws lead to life because we've experienced death. Jesus is like, I know that. That's why at the very beginning of the Bible, I'm going, hey, I'm pointing you to me. I'm pointing you to me all the way through. I'm pointing you to me all the way through First and Second Kings. I'm pointing you to me. Like every character in the Bible, he's going, ultimately, is pointing you to me. He shows up in the New Testament. He goes, hey, I'm the one that everybody has been pointing to. Pointing to. So that you might find me. So that I might find you. And so that shame and guilt and failure and whatever... I might receive that. My blood is the only thing strong enough to fully and completely absolve the whole of it. I can cover it. There's no other thing. Everything else are just fig leaves sewn together. So bring that to him. Look, it's a new year, and I don't know what it's going to bring. And I've been disabused of this idea that it's going to be easier. I don't think it is. I hope it is. We'll see. We'll see. But are you going to enter it on your own? Or are you going to go into it with him? It's a commitment moment where you go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give myself to this God. Or I'm going to re-give myself, recommit myself to this God. Because my fig leaves aren't doing it. And neither is my strength, wisdom, resources, power. I don't have it, Lord. So I want to enter this year and walk through it together with you. Okay? That is an opportunity. And so consider that. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not given us what we have deserved, but instead you have taken what we deserve upon your own son and meted it out fully that we might receive what he deserves. God, by the life and suffering, by the death and burial, by the resurrection and the defeat of death of Jesus for us, We ourselves are made clean and we need no fig leaves. 
God, let us bring our sin and ourselves to you without excuse. Let us lay down all of the ways that we have failed. And let us authentically leave that together with the guilt and the shame of it all at your feet and rise up. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, Lord, that we might know your strength. Infuse our minds with your word, which is your word, all of it, every word. That we might have your mind and know your wisdom. God, pour out the resources of heaven which are unlimited upon us day by day like the manna in the wilderness that we might with joy take it up and live that day looking for the good. It's there. And let us see your power. Our own power, the powers of our institutions, the power of our ideas and governments and all of these things at some point are not enough. Lord, we long and we live to see the power of the living God. So bring you and fall upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.